This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello there, I'm Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. Now, I have been doing two different podcast formats, Serial Killers on Saturday nights, and my series called Behind the Horror on Wednesday nights. And just like last Wednesday's podcast that wasn't a Behind the Horror, this one isn't either. I think Behind the Horror might be on hiatus for just a bit. I was flooded with so many requests to do this specific guy that I decided to dive in. Now, this podcast will be on Aleister Crowley. Now, if you know anything about him, then you automatically know what I'm about to say. And if you don't, then understand that this will be pretty graphic. And I know some of you think I disclaimer when it's not needed, but I think it's warranted this time. I see the feedback on iTunes and such, but I'm unable to respond for some reason. Also, I am so aware of the fact that there are like a bajillion conspiracy theories out there surrounding this man and some of the groups that he was associated with, but I'm not touching that in this podcast. We can address that later if you'd like. Just let me know. So, Alistair Crowley. Wow. This one's going to be interesting and long. He's not a serial killer that I'm aware of, but there have been poems and songs written about him, religious practices based on his beliefs, and the way he chose to live his life is unlike anything the vast majority of us could ever comprehend. But I'm going to at least attempt to do this story justice, okay? So here we go. Some call him Alistair Crowley, others Crowley. Regardless, he was born on October 12, 1875 in Royal Leamington Spa, Warwickshire, England, which is located southeast of Birmingham. This area was once a small village, but it grew into a spa town in the 1700s when it was discovered and thought that its natural spring waters had medicinal properties. In the 1800s, it began to grow quite rapidly. It has absolutely gorgeous architecture within the city. And its last population census showed a population of 55,733. It was Queen Victoria who visited the town when she was but a princess in 1830, and again when she was queen in 1858. The royal pump rooms and baths were opened in 1814, close to the river that runs through the city. Those structures brought in a lot of travelers and visitors, thinking that, by bathing in the pools of salty spa water, that they'd be cured of, you know, various ailments. This area attracted many wealthy and famous people, so this was a rather prosperous area during the time of Alistair's birth. So at the time of his birth, his name was Edward Alexander Crowley, but I'm going to continue to call him Alistair just to save on confusion. His father was Edward Crowley, who was born in 1829 and then died in 1887. Now his father before him was also Edward Crowley, born in 1788. And his mother was Mary Sparrow, who was born in 1788. Both of Alistair's paternal grandparents would be dead before he was even born. Alistair's father himself was 46 years old when Alistair was born. And Edward trained as an engineer, but the shares that he bought in his family's brewing business called Crowley's Alton Ales had made him quite wealthy, and he was able to retire before Alistair was even born. 
Edward and his father had established a number of public places that sold Crowley Ale. Alistair's mother was Emily Bertha Bishop, born in 1848, died in 1917. So she was kind of aware of his goings-on through some of her life. Emily's father was John Bishop, born in 1793, and her mother was Elizabeth Cole, born in 1808. Alistair's maternal grandmother would be the only grandparent still alive when he was born. Emily was 27 years old when she had Alistair, and she was from a Devonshire-Somerset family. Now, there are plenty of reports that she indeed had a difficult relationship with her son. She even nicknamed him, quote, the Beast. Alistair was named after his father, of course, and he was the couple's firstborn child, heir to their fortune. His parents were also deeply religious. There is an old story that says he was born with four hairs on his head that curled in such a way as to form a swastika, and he had the mark of the beast on him. Now, is this fact or fiction? I don't know. Since his father had no need to work, he sort of appointed himself a preacher of the Plymouth Brethren. They were a small, separatist denomination with an emphasis on three beliefs. The literal truth of the scriptures, not up for interpretation. Everyone was equal in the brethren. There was no priestly authority. And the believe in the imminent second coming of Christ. So his father was known to travel around a bit, on foot apparently, preaching the word of the Plymouth Brethren. The couple had an infant daughter, but died in 1880 when she was still an infant, when Alistair was not quite five years old. The family then moved to Red Hill, Surrey countryside, just south of London. And while his father was out preaching the faith, Alistair's mother was the one enforcing the teachings and rules of that faith. In fact, his mother denied him many things that most children take for granted, such as there were no gifts, there was no Christmas morning, no books purchased for young Alistair to read, outside of the Bible, of course, and nothing to entertain himself with, and certainly no toys. At four years old, he was forced to eat with the servants of the house for breakfast rather than sitting with his own parents. The servants took turns reading verses out of the Bible while he sat there. And since his parents believed so completely in the imminent second coming, Alastair was taught from the very beginning about the coming of the end of the world. He was taught about the, quote, wickedness of sinning, as well as regular, in-depth discussions about death, because his father was nearly obsessed with death. His parents and the people they surrounded themselves with felt that something like signing a contract that had some stipulation far in the future showed a lack of faith in how soon Jesus was going to make his comeback. So Alistair did what most kids do. He threw himself into his belief system, following in his father's footsteps and going with him to talk to people about the ways of the brethren. But as he got older and he became, let's say, awake and aware of more of the world outside of his cocoon, as I call it, he began to think past what had always been taught to him. This was most likely due to the fact that the boy didn't attend any formal education until he was eight years old. He didn't have other kids to play with. I mean, he was taught at home by his parents or various paid tutors. But when he was studying with his father once, Edward instructed his son to go through the entire Bible and mark every time the word but is used. Though most all of us would find this extremely and completely obsessive, it did serve to make Alistair a very proficient reader, reading far beyond what other kids his age could. 
He was also taught geography, history, math, and even Latin. To say he was well-educated is an understatement. So, at eight years of age, just before he was sent to private school, his father sat him down for a nice father-son talk. Easy going. First, he had his young son read the chapter of Genesis about how Noah had gotten drunk and was naked, and his three sons got a cloth. They walked in backwards into his tent and covered his nakedness without seeing their father's naked body. Edward then looked at young Alistair and said, quote, Never let anyone touch you there, unquote. And school was not at all what the boy expected. Firstly, Alistair was, as he described himself, chubby with a chest that looked like a girl's due to being overweight. He was an overall happy kid with a sunny disposition. But he had zero experience in what most young boys preoccupy themselves with, you know, teasing and games. So needless to say, he was bullied horribly. And they made him feel weak and worthless. Then, when Alistair was 11, his father died suddenly, cancer of the tongue. He later said that he had, you know, felt respect for, but little to no love for his father. He said that after his father's funeral, he changed how he thought about the brethren and their beliefs, that he sort of experienced an epiphany, a new phase in his life revolving around nonconformity. His mother then sent him off to school at Eber School in Cambridge for Sons of Plymouth Brethren, ran by the Reverend Chapney. And while he had inherited a third of his father's fortune, this only served for Alistair to begin to misbehave. Though he strived to be big, strong, and hearty like his father, his behavior proved that he was having a rather difficult time maintaining that. In fact, the discipline he received was described as harsh, to say the least. Now, Reverend Chapney claimed to Alistair that he had never, quote, fucked his wife. He told the boys that, quote, God had a special eye for what was done in darkness, unquote. And the good reverend loved it when the boys came in to tattle on the other boys because then he could revel in one of his favorite pastimes, beating the boys with a stick or switch. Alistair said that he had been given at least 60 lashes on his legs and knew of another boy who got 120 on his shoulders. And the beatings were organized as such that there would be 15 lashings, then prayer, then another 15 lashings, and then prayer, and so on. Alistair very much believed that the reverend was a sadist. So Alistair stated that this was about the time that he began to fantasize about torture, blood, and he started imagining himself being hurt and in agony, and how enjoyable that might be. He also was beginning to notice girls. It was a nice change of pace compared to his really only experience with girls being his mother, whom he hated. Mm, You know, hatred really isn't quite the word. He thoroughly despised her. She constantly antagonized him and he began treating her like a servant. As Alistair caused more and more trouble, he felt his childish fears give way to rebellion. At 11 years old, Alistair began to chronically masturbate. He had also finally heard the saying that cats had nine lives, and he took that to mean that it would be nearly impossible to kill a cat. Now, most children might just sit and think about that from a few different perspectives, you know, shrug it off, or even shudder at the thought and move on, but not Crowley. He later wrote about it. These are his words. He caught one, gave it a large dose of arsenic, then used chloroform to knock it unconscious, hung the cat up and stabbed it, slit its throat, and crushed its skull. 
He did eight separate horrible things to this cat in total, then stated he threw it out of a window to make sure that it used up its ninth life. He stated, quote, the operation was successful, unquote. He did say that he was genuinely sorry for the animal, but felt compelled to perform his scientific experiment. He began to hate all of the religious education that his mother and her brother, who was now acting as sort of a stand-in father figure, were forcing on him. He actually said that his uncle was, quote, mentally and morally lower than the cattle of the fields, unquote. He also described his uncle as, quote, hypocritical, unctuous, idious, in feature resembling a shaven ape, in figure a dislocated dachshund, a ruthless, petty tyrant, unquote. But he continued to study the Christian Bible nonetheless, being fascinated mostly by the book of Revelation, the false prophet, and the whore. As he continued to study the Bible, he began to see the inconsistencies within it and pointed them out to his teachers, who lashed out and disciplined him because, you know, how dare he? Another story from Crowley is how he had been sexually experimenting with another young boy and had been caught and had been beaten by the reverend. It was at this time that he realized he had become fascinated with the enemies of God. He stated he sympathized with those enemies and that sympathy stayed with him for the rest of his life. Now, his unruly, bratty behavior was a constant cause of irritation for his mother who called him the beast and they fought regularly. And Alistair loved being called that. He reveled in it, actually. It made him think of the beast referred to in the book of Revelation. His mother told him that she actually believed that he was the Antichrist, the literal Antichrist, come to start Armageddon. Now, his uncle saw the back and forth of the situation regarding the school Alistair's mother insisted he go to, and he put him in a different, more public school. He also managed to get him a doctor because he could clearly see that something was wrong with the young boy. A doctor supposedly diagnosed him with a serious kidney disease. Albumin is a protein found in the blood that healthy kidneys do not allow to pass into the urine. It can be caused from type 2 diabetes, which I didn't find Alistair being ever diagnosed with, um, chronic kidney disease, or sometimes high blood pressure. He was an overweight child, so I'm not really sure what the cause was of this, but regardless, the doctor told the family that Alistair would not reach adulthood. So his mother hired a private tutor and sent him on tours outside for fresh air and a bit of exercise, and he spent his early teens touring the more rural parts of Great Britain. Now he of course excelled in his studies and was quite happy with his life at the time. He started writing poetry and actually had a talent for it, wanting to be a poet when he was grown. One tutor took him to horse races and exposed him to gambling, and on one particular trip to the theater when he was 15, he met a woman, and that's when he lost his virginity. He stated at that moment he realized what all the fuss was about, as they say. His mother discovered that he had had sex with one of the maids at the house, too, in her bed, I might add. So, of course, his mother fired that maid at once, threw her out on the streets, and no one would hire her, you know, reputation, so she became a prostitute. And this is going to kind of show a pattern when it comes to women in Alistair's lives. So, he also claimed that that maid became one of the victims of the actual Jack the Ripper, he even said he knew exactly who Jack the Ripper was, a man who practiced black magic by the name of Robert Donston Stevenson. But this, of course, has not been proven. 
So once he was showing great health improvement, he was sent back into public school where after only three terms, he came home stating that he had been sexually assaulted by boys there. So of course his mother didn't send him back. He spent more and more time climbing mountains and fishing outdoors. This of course did nothing for his declining morality. During this time, when he had taken a trip to Glasgow, he contracted gonorrhea. And as we all know, this is a sexually transmitted disease that causes pain and burning during urination, a discharge coming from the penis, and testicular pain. The symptoms for women are generally the same only for their female sex organs. If left untreated, it can spread to the joints and even the heart valves. Now, my research stated that during this time, they used mercury or silver injections to treat gonorrhea. And I don't know what they used on him, but whatever it was, it must have worked because there is no more mention of him suffering with these side effects after this. So then he was sent to live with a brethren tutor in, in Eastbourne on the southern coast of England. There, he studied chemistry and found out he was quite the talented chess player and mountain climber. In 1894, when he was 19 years old, he visited the Alps and joined the Scottish Mountaineering Club. At 20 years old, he attended Trinity College, Cambridge to read Moral Sciences. He also decided at this time to change his name from Edward to Alistair. It is said that he didn't spend a lot of time in class, actually preferring to read English literature in his room. He actually spent most of his time in his room. He did venture out to play chess, though. He even joined the chess club and beat the club president badly at several games. He also studied Russian on top of already knowing Latin and Greek. He spent his summer vacations traveling Europe, and during his winter holiday in 1897, he visited Stockholm, where something happened that changed him forever. He said he was sleeping, but not soundly. He knew he wasn't dreaming. He said he figured out that he had a magical power within him that he had become instantly aware of. He said it was a horrifying experience. And yet it seemed to be the pure and spiritual answer to his lifelong questions throughout his existence. Through this experience, he said it showed him what he wanted to spend his time on, being an addict of the secret arts that would guarantee him immortality and he'd be able to control the secret forces of nature. From then on, he did not bother himself with his college education much, and in fact, he became quite obsessed with sex. He thought it absurd that anyone would go chasing after and wooing women or men when you could just hire a discreet prostitute who would come to the back door every or every other evening to quote, fuck, and there would be no emotional attachment. By the end of his college career, he was preoccupied with three things, poetry, mountain climbing, and spiritual truth. Crowley around this time wrote a book under the name George Archibald Bishop. It was a book of poetry called White Stains that was graphically pornographic, including bestiality, which is sex with animals, and necrophilia, or sex with a dead body. He self-published it in 1898 in Amsterdam because he figured that the English publishing houses would not publish it. And he wrote it in both English and in French. Alistair befriended a man by the name of George Cecil Jones who would help him with his spiritual journey. Jones was a chemist who used his knowledge and combined it with magical practices. Alistair was often at Jones's house and he did study magic. And it was during one of these visits that Jones confided in Alistair that he was a member of a group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And Alistair decided that he wanted to join. 
Other notable members were Bram Stoker himself and the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He went to a mason's hall that was used for ceremonies for the occult sciences. Some of the members he recognized, many of them well-respected artists of, you know, varying mediums. In 1898, he was a full member. Then he found that there were actual kind of internal levels within this group, and he rose quickly, wanting to be a part of like the second tier, which would require a specific invitation from those upper members. And one of them was a bit hesitant when it came to Crowley. His name was Samuel Mathers. Samuel was a master Freemason who had also worked on translating the Key of Solomon, which was the oldest book on magic and other ancient books. He thought that Alistair was too intense, didn't know where the line was between good and evil. But it is known that Mathers didn't like that Alistair was actually bisexual. But eventually he let him in and the two found a level. They could tolerate each other pretty well. Alistair got a very nice and very expensive apartment and invited one of the senior members to live with him so that he could teach him magic. He learned about ceremonial magic and ritual drug use and together they performed the rituals of summoning demons. They used the entire spectrum of drugs, opium, hashish, morphine, cocaine, etc., and side note, it was completely legal to take those drugs then. What was illegal was homosexuality, and Crowley was being watched. The next year, Crowley bought a very nice and very large house on the shore of Loch Ness in Scotland. Alistair did love the Scottish culture and even began wearing the traditional Highland dress. Now, he used this home for any manner of debauchery. The drug use and the sex parties were intense stuff of legends. He said he had invoked several demons to the point that, according to him, there were shadowy figures all around the house at any given time. Servants hired to work in the home later said that they escaped, speaking of the disgusting things that went on such as the consumption of bodily fluids like urine, feces, semen, and menstrual blood. Anyone who entered the house did so, quote, at their own peril. Some that had been in the house were horribly addicted to drugs by the time they left. One of his followers literally had a break from reality and tried to murder Crowley. During this time, he wrote more poetry, publishing Jezebel and other tragic poems, Songs of the Spirit, Appeal to the American Republic, some actually considered critical successes. So in 1900, when Alistair was 25 years old, he decided to travel through the United States down into Mexico, and he settled in Mexico City. He began seeing a local woman and loved the area. He continued practicing magic as well as writing his poetry. He even wrote a play. Then Crowley began to pray to one of the demon gods to become invisible. Now remember a lot of this is drug fueled. He swore up and down that with each day that he prayed, he could see his reflection in the mirror becoming more and more transparent is probably a good word to the point that he was convinced that he had become invisible and he walked around Mexico City believing that it was during this stage in his life where it became obvious that Alistair had no inhibitions he took part in any adventure he could find and the more horrible it was the better it was also apparent that he needed extremes when it came to stimulation often having sex with very, very old women or men, or doing torturous and terrible things to his own body or the bodies of others just to be able to get off. 
It was during this time that he became a 33rd degree Mason. He and an old mountain climbing friend that had come to visit him decided to climb several mountains, including K2. And while they didn't quite make it to the top, their distance was a standing record for some time. While on this expedition, he contracted the flu, malaria, and snow blindness. Alistair then traveled back through San Francisco. He then sailed to Hawaii. While on that boat, he started an affair with a married woman, whom he had actually really cared for, then wrote a series of poems and published them. They are called Alice and Adultery, 1903. After Hawaii was Japan, Hong Kong, then into India. Later in 1903, one of Alistair's oldest and fondest friends, Gerald Kelly, who was an artist to the monarchy, found out that Gerald's widowed sister was going to be forced into an arranged marriage. So Alistair married her, much to the disgust of the Kelly family, and it certainly damaged his friendship with Gerald as well. But Rose found Alistair completely fascinating, and he actually fell in love with her while they were traveling on their honeymoon. He wrote a series of poems to her titled Rosamunda and Other Love Songs, and another called Why Jesus Wept. In February 1904, when Alistair was 29 years old, he and his new wife landed in Cairo, Egypt, and they told the locals that they were a prince and a princess. They rented an apartment, and Crowley immediately put together a temple room where he could pray to and attempt to summon the old Egyptian gods, while also studying Islamic mysticism and Arabic. Now, his new bride already had a wee bit of an alcohol problem, and he later stated that Rose became sort of delirious, and she told him, quote, they are waiting for you, meaning the god Horus. She then led him, she was like in this hypnotic state, and she led him to a museum, and specifically to an exhibit that was the number 666, the number of the beast. Considering what his mother had called him and what he delighted in calling himself, he thought this was profound. The exhibit was Steel of Ankefen Kosu, and it's a painted plank of wood with hieroglyphics and depictions that have been found near the coffin of a priest. And if I butchered that, I'm sorry. Then Alistair stated he heard a disembodied voice that claimed to be the messenger of Horus, and he attempted to write down everything that voice told him. He titled these writings, The Book of the Law, and explains that humanity is entering a new eon, and Alistair was appointed the prophet. Now remember, he used to be obsessed with the false prophet. The new supreme law was, quote, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, unquote. And that people should learn to live in tune with their own will. It was from this that Crowley formed his new religion, Thelema. It was also during this time that Rose became pregnant with Alistair's child. They packed their things and moved back to the house on Loch Ness. Weeks later, Rose gave birth to a daughter and they named her, just get ready for this, Nuet Ma Ahathor Hecate Sapo Jezebel Lilith Crowley. Some said he was performing rituals in the next room during the birth. But, you know, during this time, he actually settled a bit, writing more poetry, including more pornographic things like snowdrops from a curate's garden, which he wrote for his wife, who was recuperating from childbirth. He also started his own publishing company so that he could publish his poetry and called it the Society for the Propagation of Religious Truth, sort of poking at the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. Alistair also decided to do some mountain climbing when he became restless in the spring of 1905. He decided to go to the Himalayas, and he wanted to be the lead. So he 
three Swiss men and an Italian man with zero climbing experience decided to go. Needless to say, it didn't go well. Arguments ensued. Crowley didn't treat the people very well, and one guy fell to his death. Then they were hit by an avalanche, then another death. So, supposedly, allegedly, he abandoned the climb and went back home to his house in Scotland, not ever knowing if the others survived or not. Alistair, Rose, and Lilith toured China while he smoked opium the whole time, and then the girls decided to head back home as he continued on. It was when he returned to Britain that he found out his daughter Lilith had died of typhoid before they ever made it back home. She was just two years old. Alistair blamed the death on his wife's not cleaning Lilith's bottles appropriately due to her normal drunken state. Rose stated that after this, for two years, he was violent and cruel toward her and her mother. He brought other women home and performed sadistic sexual and abusive acts on them or them on him while forcing her to watch. It was even said that if she put up any kind of fuss, he would hang her upside down from her ankles in the closet. And yet, during all of this, Rose gave birth to Alistair's second daughter, Lola Zaza, named after a mistress that he had had at the time in 1907. Crowley then reconnected with an old friend and began his magic work again, performing rituals and smoking large amounts of hashish. He actually wrote an essay called The Psychology of Hashish in 1909, stating that the drug was, quote, an aid to mysticism. He also said he was visited again by Awas, the helper of Horus, where the entity dictated two different writings, both of which were added to the holy books of Thelema. Now you might be asking yourself, how did he have this kind of money? That surely an inheritance from a business regarding ale couldn't run that long. Well, you'd be correct. He was now running out of money. He was hired to protect a man from supposed witchcraft that the man was convinced was being committed against him. Alistair also started accepting paying students, though he swore he would never do that, and these students were eager to learn about the occult and magical practices. He took a male lover, and they practiced sadomasochism together. So, sadomasochism, for those that might not know, and side note, I have a lot of international listeners, so I want to make sure that they understand too. But anyway, it is the sexual gratification or pleasure from inflicting physical pain and or humiliation on another person or themselves. And again, his wife Rose was there for all of it. They finally decided to divorce on the grounds of adultery, and he promised to take care of Lola, who was said to have been a sickly child, most likely due to fetal alcohol syndrome. Two years later, in 1911, Rose was committed to a mental asylum, and she died in 1932. Crowley wasn't particularly fatherly, always busy with his own pastimes, and Lola wound up living with Rose's brother, Gerald, who, if you remember, hated Alistair. There is no record of Lola having anything to do with her father after that, other than one meeting when she was 14. He wrote this about his own daughter, quote, Lola Zaza is unmanageable. She despises everybody, thinks she is a genius, is stupid, inaccurate, plain, ill-tempered, etc., etc. And that was that. She grew up, she married, she had a daughter. Crowley went on to create the Rites of Artemis, which was a public performance of magic and symbolism featuring members of his religion acting as deities. The people in attendance were given a drink laced with the drug peyote, which is a drug native to Mexico and southwest Texas in the U.S., and it produces hallucinations. 
One of his other performances was written about in a newspaper, and Alistair was described as, quote, one of the most blasphemous and cold-blooded villains of modern times, unquote. The article stated that Alistair was involved in a homosexual relationship, which, if you remember, was illegal then, and his lover broke up with him and left. So then Crowley began publishing twice a year a sort of pamphlet that he called the Equinox, which included poems and different things and became the official manuscripts often referred to as, quote, the Review of Scientific Illuminism, unquote. While visiting Paris, he met another woman, Mary Desti, who was a married woman, and the two continued his magic work together, and his magic had already begun involving animal sacrifices. Mary and Alistair got a villa in Italy, where they could continue their sex and magic practices out of the prying eye of Western Europe. Now, Mary had a 13-year-old son named Preston who had stayed back with his father. He came to visit his mother, and it was obvious that Preston and Alistair were not going to get along. Alistair was so, I guess, distressed by the boy's presence, you could say, that he began cutting himself. And Preston was so horrified that he later stated he felt that he and his mother escaped with their lives. Some of you might know this, but this Preston, but this was Preston Sturgis, who grew up to be one of the most influential Hollywood directors of his time. He was also a playwright and a screenwriter. Alistair returned to London and back with a former lover. His magic works continued and he published the Book of Lies, which was described as, quote, his greatest success in merging his talents as a poet, scholar, and magus, unquote. Crowley adopted the magical name of Baphomet, who was a deity that was incorporated into the occult and mystical traditions. It is a man with a goat's head, right hand facing up, left hand facing down. It is most recognizable as a symbol for satanic worship. Crowley created a magical working entirely around anal sex and added it to the syllabus for any new recruits. But by 1914, Alistair was living what they call a hand-to-mouth existence. He relied mostly on dues that members had to pay to be a part of his occultist groups. He also spent World War I in the United States and earned money writing for Vanity Fair, yeah, the Vanity Fair. For years, he traveled around the U.S., stating New Orleans was his favorite city out of them all. At some point, he met Leah Hersig, and the two became lovers. Alistair began painting, and his work was once exhibited in the Greenwich Village Liberal Club. But in 1920... At 45 years old, he was completely broke and back in London. He began having symptoms of asthma, so doctors, quite commonly then, prescribed him heroin, so of course he became quickly addicted. He filed two of his teeth to points and bit women to, quote, infect them with my power, unquote. He began talking about how climaxing while killing your sexual partner would be the pinnacle of experiences. He said even better would be to murder a willing victim, then have sex with her dead body, then cut the body into nine pieces with the names of gods written on each piece. The head would have to be burnt in the name of other deities, but never fear. He said this should only be done rarely. Now, Leah became pregnant while already having a two-year-old son. They hired a nanny, only the nanny also became pregnant with his baby. He decided to settle down and rented an old villa in Sicily, Italy, facing the Mediterranean. 
This is where Crowley founded the Abbey of Thelema. It was basically a commune with his two lady lovers, their prior children, and the babies that he helped conceive. It was also in this commune that he would partake in activities, earning him the title, quote, the wickedest man in the world, unquote. Every morning, they all put on robes, walked outside, chanted, and prayed. Most evenings were saved for sex magic between the three of them or others he found in the small village. Now, the baby that he had had with Leah became quite ill and had to be taken into the village, where, on Alistair's 45th birthday, the baby died. Leah was also pregnant with her second child with him, and she suffered a miscarriage. Leah was completely devastated. Alistair then found out that the nanny had done some magic spell work against Leah and her child, and he felt that that's why the baby and the fetus had died. So Crowley went into his home temple and performed an exorcism on the nanny to, quote, rid her of demons. But his rituals in the abbey were becoming more and more bizarre. He welcomed all people into the villa, male or female, to have sex with him, open-door policy. He painted his face as to emulate, quote, the lowest kind of whore, unquote, and allowed people to sodomize him or vice versa. Of course, his heroin addiction was nearly out of control at this point, and his finances were worse. He then performed an ultimate ritual. He stated that he was going to put his life into the hands of the gods. He would stand before them, corrupted of purity, violated, physically unclean and contaminated, desecrated and dishonored. He was to be sexually exhausted by every conceivable means and every device within a close proximity to be used on him sexually and to take every possible drug-like substance that was known and locally available. He came out of his temple stating he was at a higher level than the gods themselves. And not only did he come out triumphant, a new concubine, Pauline Pierce, also gave birth eight months later to a daughter named Barbara Pierce after going back to the U.S. Now, guys, Barbara Pierce, whose photos from when she was a very young girl or really her whole life, look hauntingly like Aleister Crowley. Now, do you know who she went on to marry? George H.W. Bush, the future president of the United States. George W. Bush could be Crowley's grandson. I'm not joking. His followers that were living in the Abbey later stated that they drank cat's blood after it had been sacrificed and that they were expected to cut themselves with razors if they referred to themselves as a single person because he wanted them to lose their sense of individuality. There was no I. One of his followers drank polluted water, which developed into a liver infection, and it killed him. One follower claimed that someone had brought their baby with them, and the baby mysteriously disappeared. Now that last one Crowley said was absolutely untrue. He didn't really argue the rest, though. Needless to say, the news of Alistair's activities in that house spread, and spread until Mussolini himself forced him and his followers to leave the country. They abandoned the abbey, and it's still there, but it is crumbling. In 1923, he was trying to kick his heroin habit, and he began writing his autobiography. He also underwent several nasal operations because of the damage he had done due to his cocaine abuse. In 1928, 53-year-old Alistair was deported from France because they were well aware of his choice in lifestyle, and they wanted no part of that. At this point, he was living in exile. Wherever he landed, his reputation followed. 
people were either completely disgusted by him or fascinated. The followers he had had at the Abbey all suffered with extreme drug addiction. Leah herself had to give her son back to her sister and wound up prostituting herself in the streets of Paris. But eventually, she was able to return to the U.S., and she cleaned herself up, and she became a devout Roman Catholic. In 1931, another lover of his that he abandoned tried to commit suicide. Another mistress, who was only 19, successfully committed suicide. Finally, his lifestyle and reputation caught up with him. Some people wrote quite negatively about him, and he sued them for it. In April 1934, the 59-year-old Alistair lost his case, and he wound up bankrupt. It has been said that Crowley also offered his services during World War II, that he influenced Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, and that he gave false astrological information to one of the Nazi leaders, Rudolf Hess, who was into the occult. Crowley has also been connected to L. Ron Hubbard, who did practice sex magic with Jack Parsons, who was a rocket scientist. L. Ron Hubbard was a disciple of an occult lodge in California that funded Crowley's cause, but after a couple of years, L. Ron Hubbard took off with one of the female priestesses. And as we all know, he later founded Scientology. In 1945, Alistair moved into his final house, which was a boarding house in Hastings. His health was bad, living the life that he had, ravaging his body both internally and externally, had finally taken its toll. He was still very much addicted to heroin and would go into these rages. And then, at the age of 72, he died. His final words were, quote, I am perplexed, unquote. He was buried in a nondescript graveyard in Brighton. So, a boy born into privilege but raised in a fanatically religious home with no peers or real socialization with kids his own age, whose father told him to never let anyone touch his genitals, and a mother who called him a beast. A boy who never had any real responsibilities was not held accountable, who was indulged in so many ways, and yet held back in other critical areas. What did they expect? Now, I am in no way saying his life was enviable. He was clearly a highly intelligent man who wanted to explore every possible experience that was considered taboo at the time. Now, do I think some of his actions were disgusting or deplorable? Of course. Who ingests feces for fuck's sake? But I get it. I don't like most of it, but I get it. Had he been born during our current times, he might have been considerably less, let's say, shocking. But he wrote so much material. If I had named everything that he was the author of, we'd be sitting here for hours. So if you're curious, look him up. 